Hi everyone, welcome to Hey Hey Agave. On this episode, we have Alex Jandernoa and Mariah Kunkel from Banez Mezcal. Banez is a brand of mezcal that's made in Ejutla, Oaxaca, which as we all know is one of the areas in Oaxaca that produces a ton of mezcal. What's interesting about this brand is that it's composed of a cooperative of producers that is in contract with the distributor, which is an American company, CNI, that's led by three brothers specializing in high quality artisanal spirits from around the world. It's a great conversation. We haven't had a chance to discuss this type of a business model yet, and I think you'll find it really interesting. Gabrielle and I also had a lot of questions, particularly about the Ensemble blend that is their flagship spirit that you see everywhere. Typically, it's used for mixing cocktails. Alex and Mariah were really open and candid with us, and you'll definitely come away with a really good understanding of their structure, the mechanics behind how the brand works. Alex has also been living in Oaxaca for about the past year, so he was really helpful as well because he was like feet on the ground interfacing between the co-op and uh, the CNI. So I think you'll find it um, just very enlightening. Um, Alex was also able to talk about agave cultivation, environmental issues, how they're addressing sustainability, and he also discusses their bat project. We also hope to get the president of the cooperative on the podcast soon, Francisco Javier Perez Cruz. I think that would add uh, an additional component to to this already really fantastic conversation. I also wanted to mention that I did uh, follow up with Alex and Mariah uh, for a question that I had after I had listened through the podcast, and I'm going to post the question and their answer on our website where we also have wonderful images, thanks Mariah, of Banez and Ehutla and the area and agaves and such. So please go check that out. You can find it at tuyo.nyc on the Hey Hey Agave page. I also wanted to just say, if you guys had a chance to listen to the the Spirited Conversations podcast, um, the most the last one that we posted, um, you know that conversation was about big mezcal looking beyond Oaxaca, and um, I think that you know Bonnez is a big mezcal brand, and so this kind of like adds a little bit more dimension to that conversation. Uh, we invite your comments and your ideas and suggestions. Please feel free to email us at ola at You can also post comments directly on the website, DM us on Instagram. We love to hear from you. And also, if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps to give us some extra exposure. Okay, I think that's everything. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And here is our conversation with Alex and Mariah. Hi, everybody. Welcome. We are joined today by Mariah Kunkel, Brand Development Manager at Banez, and Alex Jan- Jandernoa. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was going to screw that up. No, that's fine. Uh, brand Manager in Mexico for Banez. Yeah. Welcome, you guys. Thank hey, you. Thanks Thank so you much for joining us. Yeah. And Gabrielle, you're here too. Let's not forget. I'm here. We only have one microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give away our secrets. <laughs> they actually have eight. <laughs> So as we tend to do on Hey Hey Agave, I'd love to start um, by you guys describing the expression that you brought with you today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I brought a Mexicano from San Agustin Amatengo, and this is produced by our co-op's first ever maestro, Apolonio Patricio Lopez. And it's, I'm usually not a fan of Mexicano, like it's not high on my list, and I love this one. Why do you love it? Uh, it, It's a little less sweet. 
I think, and it's a little more herbaceous, and it's kind of an expression that I haven't seen a side of, in, uh, or like I haven't seen that side of Mexicano, um, and a lot of them I tried, and so it kind of took me by surprise, and I think that's why I like it. I see what you mean. Yeah. Fifty-five. Yeah, it's a. Little, I I pulled it from Polo's Planque before I came. <laughs> Good. That's, yeah, it, it's really really tasty. Yeah, thank you. So you know. There's the saying, right? Uh, you don't find mezcal, mezcal finds you. So I figured we could start off by each of you describing to us a little bit of how you both came to be part of the Agave Distillate community. Um, Alex, do you want to go first? Yeah. Um, so I've always been fascinated with fermentation, um, terroir, food science. Uh, and so I guess it was kind of a natural progression um, from looking at what is the most complex kinds of food and you can have all these different routes and mezcal is something that I've really, really liked for a long time. And I knew I wanted to work in it. Uh, I just didn't expect to be working in it so soon. So I just kind of feel really lucky to be here. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, when did you first try an expression? When do you remember? Yeah, I don't know what it was, but my parents had, um, my parents like booze. Uh, and so they had a basement kind of like where they put the old bottles that they weren't like really drinking and I knew I could get away as a teenager drinking that. So I was probably like 13, 14 and I found an old Mexican Coke bottle and I thought it was tequila. Uh, and then probably around like 20, I was at a bar. I mean, 21. Right. Yes. 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 Uh, I was Age at a bar um, and someone served me a mezcal and I didn't, I didn't know what it was. Someone bought me a shot uh -huh. and I like, you know, I like to sip liquor and so i sipped it at first and i was like and i looked at the bartender and i was like what is this what is this and he's like oh it's mezcal and i had that food memory that little ding yeah. <laughs> you know where you're I, like i know this transported me back into like my basement like sipping it like looking around and just being like okay yeah no yeah. no i love this um but i didn't really get into it actually my partner is the one that went to the bars and would order mezcal more than me where where do you grew up uh, i'm from northern michigan well west michigan well, I have to bring this up. I know I had mentioned it off mic before, but um, in some of the questions that I had sent you, right? Yeah, you did say that you're the child of world hopping hippies. Yes. So, which would lead me to believe that that's why they had a Coke bottle full of mezcal in your basement. Yeah. yeah. Um, my parents always had weird ingredients lying around the house. Uh, we would eat out, but we would cook mostly at home, and it was never like the same thing where there was a food schedule. Uh, it was always they were reading and buying cookbooks and traveling to eat. And so food and booze and kind of the culture behind those indelibents has always been huge in my house. Uh, and my parents have traveled kind of all over and brought those things with them. So I'm very, very spoiled in that way. <laughs> and Mariah, what about you? Growing up um, in my household, my parents were never big drinkers. It wasn't something that happened um, very frequently. And the times that it usually would come out would be celebration when we'd have other people over to the house. And my father was a very straightforward. He enjoyed tequila. And I you know, had a uh, had a presence in our house from very, very beginning. It was never anything super sophisticated. It was always very straightforward. I think the thing that he loved most about it was sharing it with the people in his home. So for me, I think that's where sort of like having agave spirits in my life started. 
And I think when I came to um, encounter Mezcal was definitely through sort of the cocktail renaissance that happened in New York City and cocktail bars. And um, one sort of discovering it as component of these amazing cocktails that um, bartenders in New York were creating, it really inspired me to explore. You have a background that is, is kind of unusual, but also there's a few people that we know in the Mezcal world that have the law, the law, the law school behind yeah. it. How, how does this come across? Uh, I think I, I, I feel like law school is kind of a place where people are who are very clever but like are not good at math or science. <laughs> and <laughs> my partner's in law school right now. <laughs> or people that love law. I don't, I'm not there are some great people that went to law school because they want to be lawyers. But for me, it was sort of I like to read, I like to advocate, I like to talk to people, I like to research. Um, and that was sort of what led me there. But I think uh, I never actually practiced. I did pass the California bar. But uh, yeah, I find that there are a lot of like, you know, lawyer, like lawyers and undercover, um, I find, I encounter. Noah from, uh, from Claro, ex Madre. Noah, Noah is a lawyer too. For, is he, yeah? Yeah. So it was, it was kind of funny because yeah. we, we had a, we, we did have a, a, a podcast with him yeah. recently. And that was one of the questions that came out. So when I saw it on the, on the interview that we did, uh, previous day the podcast and i'm like look at this we have two lawyers in the podcast now it's pretty yeah. awesome yeah yeah small world yeah okay guys um can i ask you how you each got involved with bonez uh mariah do you want to go first sure um i actually came across bonez uh initially through social media um i sort of saw pictures of the co-op the process the brand itself and um, it really resonated with me. And I mean, I see a million things on social media and something just spoke to me and I reached out uh, at that point because they were um, actively join uh, growing the team. So um, I reached out, got a, got a response and was eventually added to the team. And what about you, Alex? Uh, um, I was in Oaxaca for vacation and worked across the street from the importer's office and became friends with them. Uh, they set up what I thought was a tour, and it turned out to be essentially a job interview. I got back to Chicago, and um, Scott Goldman, who's the one of the presidents of CNI, uh, was like, hey, do you want to work for Bonhez? And I was like, yeah, that would be amazing. He's like, okay, cool. Do you want to move to Oaxaca? And so three weeks after getting hired, I moved to Oaxaca. How long were you in Oaxaca for to like, like two establish weeks. that relationship? Like two and a half weeks. It worked on instinct, huh? <laughs> well, I walked into Apolonio's Palenque, and I didn't know this at the time, but because it was a job interview, uh, they kept handing me really, the, you know, there's the normal size hickeras and then <laughs> the there's, there's the, the, size of the your head. Tio Borracho size hickeras. <laughs> uh, and so they kept handing me this and my partner would take a sip and it was like 60%, you know, and she would take a sip and she'd be like, here you, go. here you go. And what I didn't realize is they were just seeing how drunk I would get and keep talking and how mediocre my Spanish was while I was drunk. Little did they know, the more mezcal I drink, the, the less inhibited. The le gets. No, yeah. it's worse, but I'm just okay. less inhibited about it. <laughs> so they're like, this guy can communicate. We trust him. Yeah. Yeah. He's fun. Yeah. yeah. And I. And what were you doing before you accepted that position? Uh, so I have always kind of worked in fermentation. My, I was running a cheese program at Local Foods, which is a food hub in Chicago. And I was really, really lucky to work at, under Rob Levitt at the Butcher and Larder, who does amazing charcuterie and whole animal. Uh, and now he's at Publican. If you guys know that at, in Chicago, it's pretty cool. But 
he is like him and Abra Behrens, uh, who works now as a, she just released a roughage cookbook. They were really integral into letting my nerddom of food and like being weirdly obsessive about stuff like that, where like, I have to know more. Like they didn't poo poo it. They in fact encouraged it and then would like be like, well, have you heard about this Yeah. or have you seen this? I bet you have some really interesting ideas about pairings and tastings, huh? Yeah. Should maybe do a separate podcast. All mm-hmm. yeah, I love doing pairings because I worked, do you know Half Acre Brewing? No. So part-time I got to work at their shop and then they'd let me dink around and like ask a bunch of questions about the wild fermentation lab that they were doing and things like that. And then I was a cheesemaker up in Northern Michigan for a while. Uh, and then I spent some time in Costa Rica working with a coffee co-op. Uh, and then, so like I've always been centered around food. Yeah. My first job was at a brewery when I was 13. So <laughs> like I have always... Yeah, it's it's been inevitable. I'm sure my parents are like, you paid a lot of fucking Molly for college for you to be working in food. But hey, mom and dad, I'm using my degree. And you're so happy. Yeah. Yeah. And you're in Oaxaca. I mean, and the, the cuisine in Oaxaca, forget about it. We ate yeah. so well when I was there. Yeah. You said that you saw them in social media and you uh-huh. got connected. What was your background before this? Uh, I think we didn't talk about it. No, we didn't. Um, previously, I was I was still in the spirits industry working for an amazing craft gin distiller, Brooklyn Gin, uh, as their national marketing director for four and a half years. Um, sort of Shout out to Brooklyn Gin. Hey, Brooklyn Gin. <laughs> Emily and Joe. Um, and did a variety. I wore a lot of different hats, um, primarily focused on sort of consumer-facing marketing as sort of my specialty, social media, website, all that If sort you of guys stuff. don't already, please follow Mariah because her stories are the best. About last night. Uh, about last night. <laughs> about last night. <laughs> and Hector. Hector appears oh. frequently. Yeah. Hector is my French bulldog. I also only came to New York to meet Hector. There's <laughs> <laughs> been a lot of Hector time. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, but previously I've been, I've done a variety of sort of like sales and marketing, did some time in fashion, also political risk uh, as well. So Hence kind of, the law background. Yeah, and the law background. Yeah. So sort of how long you been in New York? 12 years. Yeah. From California. I was in Los Angeles previous uh, up until then, except for a stint where I studied abroad in Florence. Um, but so I've been in uh, New York and I just moved to Bushwick. Yay. In October. <laughs> and learning that area. So it's been great. On a national level, how many people are they? Is 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 this is this the team? Like you guys are like the initial team that is building up. If there's more people involved, how how does this work with yeah. the brand? So the CNI importer, they have a lot of people that work for them as reps, repping this portfolio. Um, but in terms of the Bonhez team, uh, it's us. Yeah, it's the two of us. Uh, we definitely, and then we work with this wonderful person. Her name is Lauren Richards, and she's the art director for CNI and creative director. Uh, and she is a master at figuring out how to tell stories uh, visually with the words. And then we also have one other person that we work with, uh, Tiffany uh, Nguyen, uh, who works out of Vietnam, and she runs all of our logistics. So she works with the guys in Mexico to get the trucks loaded, to get the insurance to... One of the hardest parts of getting Mezcal to the States is literally getting it up there. The actual uh, importation. Yeah, and yeah. She's, a, she's a wizard. So this leads me to um, really get into the heart of Banez. Um, let's talk about the co-op, okay? Let's talk about the co-op structure and what that looks like. 
Yeah. Uh, so I've been down there for a year, uh, about and working really closely with the Upadak Co-op out of San Miguel Hutla. That's kind of their home base. Uh, and so what it is, it's a collection of around 38 members of the co-op. Members not being individuals. Uh, it's Mezcal is kind of this crazy spectrum, so you have to include who all the people that are behind it. So we have farmers, we include nurseries, we also have maestros that produce for us, and then there's a bottling plant that's part of this co-op. So it's very closed circuit, um, and each one of those members is vital and key because so much is goes it go mezcal goes beyond just the palenque that we see. Uh, there's so many interactions and so many logistics that take forward, and we're really lucky to work with the Upadic Co-op. They've been trying to highlight this specific type of mezcal um, from a hootla in that process and secure work and steady work and sustainable work for um, these members of these different communities. This is so interesting. Um, so within within that co-op model, the members work um, collectively to like what you, I know you had mentioned this earlier to us, like, you know, if a producer or a mescalero is, you know, running behind schedule or whatever, like, will they come and help each other? Will they say, Hey, I have a batch over here. Like, how does it, how does the organization of it work? Um, so it's kind of evolved and, and that's, that's, what's really nice is it's a moving target of how this works effectively and efficiently. Um, the kind of big idea of it is each of these members has each other's back and also like the process that takes other, like that it takes. So, getting the agave to the palenque, the palenque doesn't have that field or they have a field, but their agaves aren't ready yet. It's kind of working within those limitations and creating consistent work where they can pick up the slack or for example, our agave fields. Uh, I think this is kind of a point example. Um, one of our members is actually a, a community. Uh, it's the community of Agua del Espino. And so they have a ton oh, of- Oh, so like one member is an entire community? Yep, so they profit, they share that money and farmers traditionally, are paid when their agave is ready and they harvest it. And as we've seen in tequila and some of the agave blights, that can lead to early harvesting, over-harvesting, and a lot of theft. And so San Miguel, uh, San um, Miguel Ajutla is just a little bit down lower, and that's where our bottling plant is and kind of the HQ. But up the mountain, there's this small little pueblo um, of Agua del Espino, and surrounding it is communal farmland. And we have partnered with them for them to grow agave. That doesn't mean that we ask them not to grow corn or squash or use the herbs or use it as grazing land. It just means that we pay them yearly to maintain the land. And there's a promise set forth that they will offer us a fair price for that agave because they know that we have a great producer that will make beautiful mezcal out of it. Um, on the flip side, because they have that and they have the community strength, if they want to become maestros, they have the options through the co-op to learn from that maestro and transition from just farming the agave to taking their agave and making their own mezcal. Oh, that's interesting. So that's part of the agreement. Yeah, it's uh, upward mobility is the idea. Keep keep the peso in the community of a hutla and within this co-op as long as you can and allow for upward mobility within the members. Uh, Francisco, the president, really has done a great job of making that part of the structure. So all this structure and all this movement and all this planning is from in from inside the co-op is not something that buys organized for them. It's like, this is just the way that they work. No, yeah, no. Uh, Bonhez is their brand. Um, they've tried a lot of different brands and had varying success filling other things. Um, Bonhez is what is their brand that CNI, the importer, has partnered with to kind of supply them the network of sales. 
However, like all of this, like this is all their ingenuity. It's Francisco, uh, Francisco Perez um, and Luis Perez and their family and the members of the community, such as Polo, whose Mezcal we're drinking. This is, this is their idea. We can try to put this kind of co-op label on it because that's what we like to think about it as, but uh, it's really communal. You know, Mezcal is a communal aspect. Mariah made a really good point in our conversation earlier today that we were, we were chatting. It's like the Palenque action is communal, right? It's not just the maestro, it's his family members and things like that. But also if we go beyond Mezcal, the whole process of making it is so community oriented. And I think Francisco coming from a background of agave planters really saw that and saw how that could be utilized to help the community and really reinforce Mezcal culture in Ahula. That's really interesting. And how long has this community or collective been going? Like, uh, how old is it? 15 years. Uh, Francisco, the president, was like a very big part of the DO of Mezcal and mm-hmm. trying to get that formed. And so I think he's probably been thinking about it for a lot longer. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. He's a very smart guy. Uh, and has it been growing over 15 years or has yeah. it just been the same it's 38 it, members or um it was 36 members to a year ago okay uh and there's so there's always room for more yeah there's a 70 there's a wait list Huge actually wait list, yeah. Yeah. really 70 70 applications wow yeah how do they make the determination is it just based on like met- metrics what they can fit in and, yeah uh, you know? they want to make sure everybody's secure that it is sustainable for every member of the co-op and also uh there's a year process so we look at our growth as who we can add and also for Banjas, what's really cool is it's become about this Ahutla style still, this Alambique that is a regional style that has actually, as people have moved out of Ahutla and into other places, has carried through. And so um, one of the things if they're going to be producing for Banjas and for the co-op like brand, if they're looking at that way, uh, if they're going to be producing in, in Ahutla style still or having a connection to Ahutla as a community. Well, you give us a little more of, of what that style is, what the machine looks like. Because it's a lot of the distillation through the steel. Like the, yeah. the machine itself is very peculiar to the area. It's it's a weirdo. It's kind of like a, a Frankenstein of things. Um, so if you can picture a consomme pot, those big metal ones. Um, so essentially they've put that on the outside of the copper still. And on the inside of that still, they've put plates uh, also made of copper. And so... Uh, those plates act as what we like to call the happy hour distillation. So during the pass, instead of it being four hours, then you clean everything out and you do that four hour pass again, it's four hours and it hits those plates. And that consomme comes, that consomme soup can comes into play because they're constantly running cold water into that. So as it hits those plates, it settles. And then the next four hours are akin to a second distillation as it goes through. Um, and this creates a really unique mezcal because this is a complete variance from the process we know. Um, traditionally, people associate mezcal with multiple cuts, and you add the puntas back in. You bring it up to proof, and those puntas control all the flavor. Um, and that's just one regional style. You can, as we get to know more as more, I think you'll see little little things and little differences. And a hootla, that two for one pass, um, actually uh, creates a, a mezcal that is lighter in flavor. Um, and you don't have to cut it as much, and you bring it down in proof using water. And this is exclusively for your ensemble. They don't do this for the single... Every single single expression as well. Okay, that's yep. that's good to know because most of these single expressions are also unique because the mescalero has a very specific style to do things. But in this case, if they're part of the co-op, one of the things is to maintain their hutla style as one of the guidance. Um, yeah, but also it's, 
I don't, I don't know if it's been a guidance because uh, I think when you talk to the maestros, they know that their alambique is different, but it's their history, it's their culture. And so it's, it's more of that's what's been available. And now as we've kind of know, become to know more about this and developed this kind of regional idea of mezcal and looking at it, this is something that's very old, but also for us as an American audience and consumer, it's very new. So these terminologies and things, I'm applying names to things and trying to figure it out. But that's the co that's the kind of like what I've seen as I've lived down there. Just getting back to the, the co-op structure a little bit. Um, is it, is, is Bon is Bon has the only brand that they work with, or do they work with other brands? Uh, they work with some other brands, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because that's a lot of people. I'm just thinking, like, you know, just the amount of mescaleros that a production that's going on. That's that's a lot of people. Yeah. Um. Yeah. A big thing for, uh, the importer when they kind of like looked at this and how they were going to import Bon has is they never wanted to pigeonhole the maestros or into producing only for them. Um, and I think the same can be said for the bottling plant, right? These people also want jobs. They want to be part of the mezcal culture. So the vast majority of their, I would say 95% of what they do is filling their brand of Banjas. Um, but then they have 5% where it's their friends from California that have a small brand or, mm -hmm. uh, Luis, the son of Francisco has a brand called Siempre Oaxaca. Mm -hmm. And it's like his personal love, these mezcals that he's found in their little, 30 bottle batches that he brings up to like his friend in New York and things like that. Um, and they look and they experiment around, but I think eventually down the road, uh, Bon, because Bon has is getting so big and they really like the idea of people drinking it, that yeah. they'll just go where the money goes and where they feel most comfortable. And the security of it all, right? Yeah. And who are we to tell them what to do and what not to do? I mean, we're, we're there to just try to get great Mezcal to the United States. As, we probably have we have this conversation with everybody that has come to the to the podcast and it's like when you have a brand that is growing at this rate what is the responsibility on replanting what is the responsibility of of the ecological use of wood fire like all these other things that they're because they're being manufacturing using such a bigger scale how how does the the brand works with the co-op to maintain um, an ethical way of doing all this? Um, <laughs> uh, so, I think that's kind of the joy of our ensemble. That most people that know Bon has that's what they know us for. Um, this is all of the members of the co-op. Um, we pay up front, and but we don't dictate what they make. Um, they bring it to us and their percentage of the co-op, we can take these large lots of 6,000 liters of espadine that they make um, and we can say, we can do our blend for a bottling of one one or two containers. We can take five, per, like this person has 5%. So 5% of the espadine in the blend is from this maestro. Three or 5% of the barril in the blend is from this maestro. So what it allows us to do is give them money up front and they can work within that money, right? And make sure that they have enough, they can produce the mezcal they're going to do. And we can use the Ensemble to create a, a well-priced brand because we're buying so much at once, but doing it so it affects everybody uh, like, like you would be paying an individual. Uh, that it allows us to keep the price reasonable and grow economically. And then we have our single expressions, which are these little micro 180 bottles that in the sustainability sense, it, you got to think about culture and what you want to represent. And these people 
work so hard to produce not only this Espedín Barril that we enjoy every day, but also these really unique ones like the Mexicano we're drinking. And we have to make sure that the brand not only makes the money and sustainable to grow with the demand of the American market, but also provides the maestros a way to be represented and to show pride in their brand and show their mezcal off to the world as single expressions. So if you have all of these hands that are contributing to the ensemble, how, how do you maintain the um, consistency? Um, so that blend that we're doing where we fill those containers, because we have such large lots, we can essentially do a one-year vintage, right? Where by taking a little bit of this and a little bit of this, we can make a lot of this one thing multiple times. So we'll source regularly throughout the year, but we have our consistent blend, a recipe per se, mm -hmm. built into our co-op structure. So you guys don't do any sort of like, you know... Um cultivating your own sort of yeast strand that you give to the mescaleros it's still like spontaneous fermentation yeah yeah okay as a fermentation nerd i couldn't do that <laughs> <laughs> well i mean I, we've talked to, we've talked to some people that it. sort of keep like a little starter in the pot you know yeah. or maybe d don't get rid of all of it and keep a little bit in there for the next batch so i'm just curious but those planques are so beautiful yeah. there's um so essentially when you're doing mescal there's anywhere between seven yeasts and 13 microbes throughout the process uh, going through most mezcal could be distilled during the fermentation within two to three days of that ferment and you would get the same kind of proof liquor however these uh, you know now we're in this culture where wild beers and fancy beers mm -hmm. and natural wines and we've been learning about yeasts and they're like their wonderful effects on liquor and food uh, and to think about how much is active is pretty crazy and then they let it go beyond the point of necessity simply for flavor and you talk to these guys and how they're describing, like, I'll look at it as someone who loves fermentation and be like, oh, this type of yeast is active in this. This is anaerobic. And so it's creating this. You have like this yeast. And then they're describing it as it smells this certain way. And so I know this is what's happening or this. I can tell that it's stopped doing this because it has this paste over it. And so it's kind of fun to think about, like, I may have studied and read all these books, but they know way more than me and they just don't use fancy words to talk about it. They just know it's instinctual and it's built into not only the recipe that's been passed down, but almost like, think about that olfactory. Absolutely. <laughs> like that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's all part of mastering a process, you mm -hmm. know? Um, that's really interesting because that, yeah, that was like my first question. It's like, how do all these hands, how can you create a consistent product, right? Like, I mean, I understand it's the same type of agave, but like, you know, where they're different palenque, like they're not all using the same palenque, even though there is a palenque that everybody can use. Yeah. So you have so many different factors involved, time of year, you know, like what the weather, it's temperatures like, elevation, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, I think we like to romanticize these guys with their small little gas cans of... 50 liters of this and that and for the most part like that can be done on a small scale on a family palenque where they're only producing for baptisms and weddings but maestros that produce as an economic thing are not they're not lining up hundreds of gas cans they have a large tank and they'll they'll taste it and be like this is exactly where i want my espadine to be and they'll put it in that tank and then so they maintain their own level of consistency yeah. and then you're receiving that from exactly. them exactly got and, it yeah and so we we believe in them and love their product enough that when we get it individually we obviously taste it um i give a lot of credit to luis perez because he's in charge of making this blend and if, you know, Banjas is fairly consistent and from like you're going to see just like in wine, like the bottle could change from lot to lot if you look at the back, yeah. but not very much. It's going to almost be like we can probably get like 
three large three or four large lots out of this and then we'll move it and it'll like to me that strikes me as a different vintage right um the next but you don't advertise it as that necessarily right i yeah. mean obviously the information is on the bottle of when it was bottled etc yeah and we start and so we actually we figured that you know mezcal originally it was just like people just thought about it and just wanted a shot or a cocktail and we've slowly put this culture of sipping in and things like that but just now recently like you can kind of see if you look at our past, how our labels have changed and our bottles have changed. We've been working with this co-op and our money goes to the juice and the people. Uh, it doesn't go to the label design. And so we've adjusted and adapted to kind of try to tell the story better and to the American public um, and the European public as we go forward and things like that on why it's made like this and what this represents. Um, but it's a hard story to tell uh, because you can't hand the bottle over the bar all the time. No, and, you can't. And yeah. that's, I mean, that's part of what we're trying to do with this podcast mm -hmm. is talking to you guys and to like really go as deep as we can, yeah. you know, um, to get, to get the real story, the full picture, Absolutely. because, you know, I think it's interesting that you guys offer such a wonderful product at a very affordable price point. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're often asked, well, how is that possible? You know, how can you maintain your margins? How how are people getting paid properly down there? You know, mm -hmm. because we all know that like importation fees and taxes add so much to to every bottle. Um, and so, you know, to hear a little bit of the breakdown, it helps us. It helps us to understand a little bit better. Yeah. And I, I can totally appreciate that because you look at a bottle of Mezcon with knowledge to see it at that price. Right. It's kind of you go, what what are they doing wrong here? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you wonder, I mean, what does the uh, ensemble retail for? Is it somewhere between what, like 30, 30, 35? Yeah, 27 like to 35. Okay. Uh, it yeah. depends yeah. on state taxes. Sure, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All that good you stuff. Know, but yeah. yeah, I would say in that range, which, yeah. you know, that's a very reasonable price. Yeah. Uh, and I will say that on the importer end, um, the margins are low because they do care about the when they buy this to bring it up to the states, they yeah. do care about the um, maestros and the planqueros and the co-op in general and the vast majority of the money when you see that bottle you can know that those planqueros are paid fairly right yeah. yeah. And like you said, you know, just from a business point of view, there's strength in numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're targeting volume, you've got the benefits of that on, on all levels, you know, if, if you're doing it in an ethical way, right? Yeah. And especially for our agaves, because that's that's the driving force, right? The agave price. And I think in two, three years, we're going to even see it more because we pay year round to these farmers instead of per harvest. Uh, we can kind of guarantee these rates because they they understand that like this is security and if they can if like we can continue to do this like they'll make a living wage for the rest of their life in fact they'll make better than a long time like living wage and if and if we can get the agave at this steady price and they're not so concerned about the market because it's a closed circuit mm -hmm. it allows us to keep these mm -hmm. prices really reasonable the pressure's off a little bit yeah right? it takes yeah. it it we're still we still have to compete in the market but we can take a like a half step out yeah. you know yeah mm -hmm. and as far as the sustainability goes and the replanting um is there like a system for that that the, the cooperative yeah. um i don't know they they have agreed upon or oh yeah uh, rules regulations all that stuff you know so agave like planting agave and like the nurse the idea of agaves being in the land is where this co-op started. It didn't start with a, like a palenque and being like, this is amazing mezcal, we have to expand. It started with agaves. So we currently plant 
two to one, we're at 2.8, if I do my math number, <laughs> uh, for <laughs> our cultivated. So that's our Barril and our Espedin. Um, but we also have semi-wild programs. So many of our maestros um, and our nurseries uh, are looking into growing from seed and diverse genetics and things like that. So about 25% of our fields, like or 25% of field, if it grows to Quixote, is left. The average in Mexico is around four to five. Oaxaca sits between eight and 10. We see it growing. Mm -hmm. However, we know that seeds and di genetic diversity are the key to the future for Mezcal. And luckily, Francisco has known that for years. And so this has been something that's implemented for a while. So we recently had a field of tepestate, probably like 35 wild tepestate that were ready. How many years uh, to maturation? 23. You know, it's a range in the field. So we had right. some that were probably like 17, yeah. 18, and then like 23, like different sprouting times, things like that. But we're definitely on the high upper end of aging. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Especially like they're not at a crazy high elevation. They're in a clay soil with um, lots of bedrock and things like that. It's shallow. Um, and uh, uh, Tumio, who's one of the guys, this is his family's field is just letting it go to flower. It's thousands of dollars worth of mezcal, right? But he wants his son to be able to harvest a much more wild agave and be able to make agave in 25 years. Yeah. And so what he'll do is he'll let that entire field go to seed and he'll collect the seeds that he can and he'll bring them down. And, and we don't like growing them from seed and transplanting. We don't know if it works, right? Tepesates are very finicky. Um, and so what he'll do is he'll bring them down to the nursery we have in, um, uh, San Miguel Ajutla, and he'll plant them down. And then in two years, when they're ready to transplant or so, we'll go up and he'll look at how the tepesates have wildly grown. And in the land underneath it, he'll mimic that pattern. That's really cool. Yeah. And so that allows for a wild patch to continuously grow along with a semi-wild that we can harvest at a, at a better price. And that's just one of our guys. We have um, the Tobla we're drinking, the Gonzalo. He's doing that with Arqueño because he realized it was so hard to grow. So he's been trying to find Arqueño that grow well and collect them for seeds. Uh, Luis Pacheco, does to he has a field of like semi-wild Tobla up very high. And I think he's at around 2,000 to to semi-wild Toblas. And traditionally, semi-wild Toblas take less time to mature. These have been in ground for 10, 11 years. Hmm. So it's a great sign that they're going to continue to grow and age and nothing wrong with younger Tobla, right? But most people, when they think of Tobla, they think of this old concentrated flavor. So if we can reproduce that in a semi-wild growing pattern, we can be more sustainable as we look forward. And I think, I hope that people realize that semi-wild is not a bad term. In fact, it's an amazing term. No. And in fact, I mean, Tessa said this a million times, like that's, that's our future, you mm -hmm. know, like wild, wild agave, like we'll be lucky if we can find some of that, you know, in the next 20 years. But really, I think that for us at least, you know, um, because we want to keep drinking this stuff, you know, we want to keep having it here. I think that semi-cultivated is, is just fine. Um, so I have a couple I have a couple notes here from the email that you were so kind to send me. <laughs> For the record, I sent Tonight. it one hour before this podcast. I deeply not apologize. Purpose, though, not on purpose. I would like to talk a little bit about terroir. I would like to talk a little bit about soil. Um, not because I know anything about those two things, mm -hmm. but I think that you guys do. I think for me, one of the most exciting uh, things about um, exploring mezcal and the expressions uh, of Bonnez and also just 
tasting a lot of different people, people that are very advanced in their knowledge, that know a lot, um, that have tasted a lot of things, and people that don't know the difference between tequila and mezcal. And you have to go through, you know, talking about that in a way that's accessible for them as well. Um, for me, one of the most exciting things is sort of like exploring the palate and um, talking about flavors. And for me, I don't like. I feel like I've gone through a lot of tastings in the past where people have told me what I'm supposed what I'm supposed to taste. Um, and for me, that can be kind of alienating because maybe I don't taste those things. So for me, it's exciting to taste all these different people to see how you know the air and the soil and the process and the distillation process in Ihutla sort of plays against all of these different palettes and sort of trying to construct what that means for me in my, and it's very creative um, for me as a creative person. That's something that's, you know, expressing and connecting what you're tasting with words uh, is an amazing, I don't even know how that happens. It's almost like magic. Was there a connection that, I mean, there must've been, but like what, what, how did you, how did you experience it? Because you were just recently down there mm -hmm. for the first time, yep, right? First and time. so working up here in the way that you have been, but then going down there, like what was that experience like for you to, to see it, you know, in person, mm -hmm. to be in the area that you've heard so much about, that you've been talking about, like yeah. describe that a little bit. It was amazing to be there with Alex, just because having someone who's been on the ground and sort of um, immersed in it for the past 10, 11 months um, was great to sort of have someone to take take me around. But for me, it was just really giving it a, like a geographical context, understanding the sights, the smells, um, what it's like to be in this region and also going around and seeing the actual like geography. When Sabrina tell, is asking you this about like your first experience, it just makes me think like you were finally able to put a face. Yeah. Like, you say you say co-op and co-op and co-op and you're Meet in New people. York yeah. that is miles and miles away. Yeah. And there's these all these humans yeah. in some other country doing something that you're from bar to bar in New York talking and, and communicating that you know this is who they are, but you never met them yet. Never met them. So this no. is first time you're in Oaxaca and you're like face to face with some of the faces that you are reading on the bottle right on normal days yeah it was deeply honor honoring for me an honored situation to be able to we tasted right off of the still what they were producing and for me also just seeing the process i think when i was when learning about the process you think of it as sort of just like a the step this step happens and then this step happens and this step happens but to see everything happening sort of simultaneously and how it was a multi-day process and how you know round the clock sort of different steps within the process smelling what the fermentation smelled like and and seeing all of these things sort of up close you can't get that from books or you know even just hearing it from someone that's taken part or even someone who does it themselves you really need to go there smell the smells taste the tastes and see what it's like um, firsthand it really just impresses upon you how important magical skillful this whole process is and meeting the people was just a, such a great opportunity that I felt very lucky yeah. to be there yeah yeah same same whenever I go down I feel the same way I mean and it's such a specific practice it's unlike any other liquor mm -hmm. you and Alex was going on about that earlier but it's very true you know and so that leads me just to um ask you a little bit about the specific terroir and the the, the soil you know in Ihutla like what yeah. what is that like so part of working with Banjas is really interesting, that's really interesting, is we're not one palenque, like we've been talking about, these co-ops. There's so many different names and so many different people, and I've been fortunate enough to go out there, and they let me dig around in their dirt, and they let me walk around in their fields, and they let me try things and ask them weird questions and poke around at stuff. And 
something that's interesting about terroir is terroir is personal. We can associate these molecular notions of, li of liquid with their process and their lifespan, but it is impossible to kind of like pinpoint it because what you, my taste of this Mexicano is completely different than how you're tasting it, right? Each one of us may like it, but we have a unique, it's, it's bringing out different things. And so you can say this has herbal notes, but what does herbal mean to me versus what does it mean to you? Well, you find sometimes like, you know, because you guys work with such a broad amount of different uh, palenques and, and, and lands, basically, uh, we have conversations with other people where, you know, it's a single family that does a single thing on a single town with a single terroir. So you can break it down two ways, essentially. So one of them is to look at the, the still itself, this alambique that we had talked about previously that has these plates and this refrescadore. Um, mezcal is unique in the fact that it carries a lot more heavy molecules like sugars and proteins through it. And agaves have somewhere between like 25 and 30 terpenes on them. They carry those through. They also produce unique esters. And all these things are determined, A, by the fermentation, and B, they're concentrated by the still. They're taken and they're made into something that's much more distilled. And so this type of alambique is unique in its process in that because there's less contact with the direct fire underneath, right? It comes up and then it settles on those plates and there's convection heat. It's very hot, but it's not directly sitting on there and you're not cleaning it out and putting it back over that heat that you actually get less of the heavy molecules, the sugars, the lipids um, coming through the, um, through the uh, alambique and coming down through the cooling tank and coming out. And so um, you actually have, a, in my opinion, a little bit of a brighter mezcal in terms of a hootla and this distinct type. It's going to also, if you take and you like, I'm, I'm dipping and rubbing on my hands. The he just dipped his finger in the copita <laughs> and he's rubbing it on his hand right now. Yeah. And so you can feel a difference in the viscosity of this. Um, and so this is coming out of the still at around 55 um, and so there's no cutting or putting back these things in it. You can only bring it down from there. And so this is its, at its purest form on a hula style mezcal. We can go up to 63, but if you taste, it's got a more of a present booze nose to it. It has an ester. Ester has produced this nice scent of alcohol. And I feel that our mezcal always has a very nice nose of alcohol. And many people can perceive that as citric. Um, so in that spectrum of uh, kind of like flavors, I think that we're a little bit lighter. We're a little bit more effervescent, uh, less sweet. And so that tends to push us towards being dry and acidic, but just because we have less sugar in our mezcal. Um, but then with our single expressions, we can start to look at what you were talking about. So we can look at the soil. And so this one, for example, we're drinking a Mexicano. It comes from the fields in Amatengo and Polo's fields. He has a soil makeup that's high clay. He also has heavy limestone underneath it. It's a shallow base along with a nice blend of calcisol, calcium, a uh, calcium based soil. Um, and so we can look at that and we can start to pull that this Mexicano is 12, 13 years old. It grew on a large slope, so water was always running down and never being set there. It also has less sun and a few uh, because of this slope, and there was also trees throughout this. It's a more of an agroforestry field instead of laid out flat. So we can tell that this Mexicano growing up is going to pull lots of mineral notes into it. It's going to have its roots spread very far out because of the shallow. And also, because it's clay-based, we know that the rain and the water are going to keep that soil uh, cooler. This means that it's going to produce less sugars in this agave. 
um, how this climate and the rain affects it, the swelling, we would have to look at the climate notes for 12 years to truly right. understand You'd have that. To get, yeah, I right. have them for five for every single one of our locations and yeah. I have soil, but we look five years back um, and we've seen that there's been less and less rain coming in and, and then the rain starts a little earlier, but it's less regular and it terminates a little earlier. And that's like watching this kind of rain patterns. And so we know that this is actually going to have a little bit more sun towards the end of its life. And so that can also push a little bit towards the more sugars. Do you have to do this pattern um, investigation, to call it that way, uh, to have a accurate schedule for production? No. Or this is just something that you guys are doing for just knowing just the patterns? knowledge and understanding this mezcal okay. and trying to figure out why so you know we have this we have this blend and we want to know why our stuff is special why well, like let's put some science behind this story this history and put some context into why it tastes this way am i right who knows right right sometimes you get a lime like a little bit of a lime peel on your mezcal right if you kind of think about it scientifically that could be attributed to goat shit Goat shit carries high nitrogen levels. Do tell. Yeah. <laughs> Most of these fields are communal, right? They're right. they're not just agave yeah. unless you go to some of the larger producers where there's like they weed and they take these things out. Uh, in our fields, there's wider spaces in between the agaves because the communities are using them for multiple things. Mm -hmm. And so along with the soil aspect, you have the interaction, interaction of flora, flora and fauna. Humans being part of this, the Mayu, the Maya. Um, in Southern Zapotec. And so these, all these interactions can change it. How many pests are in the thing and what they're eating. Mm -hmm. um, if the goats are coming in and, and shitting, yeah. they're going to add fertilizer, nitrogen. Nitrogen usually can add more of an acitric note to things. And so you can sometimes, I like to think when I have a little bit of lime peel, that's goat shit. That's very, that's endearing <laughs> now that you've explained it in this way. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so do they typically allow the agaves to have the quiote come up and they'll cut it and they'll capone? Yep. You the, know, the, 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 and uh, allow the, those sugars to sort of swell and develop in the, in the bean. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's something that because we pay year round instead of per harvest, a big thing is let the agaves tell you when they're ready. Right. You know, we don't want bad agaves. It makes bad mezcal. Right. And so basically, um, I mean, the ensemble is what it is. Um, that's your consistent sort of, um, you know, large, big ticket item. But when a, 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 a mezcalero comes to you and says, hey, I have all of this uh, Mexicano ready or whatever, are you like, cool? Yeah. yeah <laughs> we'll we get labeling that right away. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep, yep. The labels are, we're working on them right now. Yeah. Um, I brought you guys a Habali that we're like looking at as well. And then we're also looking into the history of mezcal and especially our, our ensemble is based off of a field blend. Something like people ask me, what's your single favorite expression? I'm like, well, I like ensembles. Mm -hmm. And I, I've learned that because I go out to the planques and they'll take little odds and ends of like what they sell us and they'll mix it together. And that's some of the best mezcal that I've ever had. Um, recent book by uh, Jay. Jay? Mm -hmm. Jay, Jay Schroeder. Jay Schroeder. And uh, there was, uh, we were talking about it and there was this one point that is mezcal de campo. Yeah, yeah, mezcal de campo. Like, it's, it's, it makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. Like I read it and I'm like, of course, this, this is the way it should be. But, yeah. you know, the, the, you have to have certain recipes and things have to be a little more consistent. But the idea of mezcal will taste the way it tastes because that they had that. Mm -hmm. Like it's so romantic and so out of 
you know, uh, context with with the, the economical part of it. But I think it's like the most amazing part of it. Like what you were saying, like having this as as a mezca, as a mix that just happens when you go, and it's not something that is gonna be for sale. But if you're lucky enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. to be in the right time with the right place with the right mezcaleros and somebody just pours a, a gallon of I don't know Coca-Cola or whatever is their preferred thing oh, and oh, it who does Coca-Cola to your yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, I, I would love and part of part of my job is to work with these maestros and listen to them and talk with them and talk with Francisco and talk with Luis and the guys at the bottling plant and and listen to what they want to drink Right. Mm-hmm. Cause that's how we got this amazing ensemble is this is what they, they, they wanted to, the ensemble is from the co-op. It's that is the original Banjas. And the idea was, what do we drink every day? A moderately proofed ensemble that's from the Campo. And then C and I came in talked to them and they're like, well, we can make this available to the general public. What's the story behind the name Banjas? Uh, the name Banjas means bliss in ancient Zapotec, which is the indigenous language of the region in which it is produced. Yeah. It's uh, specific to Southern Zapotec. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of a reference because Dicho isn't the correct direct translation, right? Felicidad isn't the correct direct translation. It's really the state of being in bliss. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's romantic as hell, but I really love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's cheesy, it's fun, but I think it fits. I guess when you reach certain level of mezcal ingestion, yeah, you, you reach bliss. You reach bliss, yeah. <laughs> right? And I, what happens after that? Usually, dollar slices. Excuse <laughs> <laughs> my homeboy. We're getting, we're getting some Frenches going. On. Tacos de leitoncito de oro. <laughs> sí. yeah, buddy, the, the taco truck is out there. So um, I, I didn't ask you guys this, but um, as far as fermentation goes, are they fermenting in wood? Yeah, um, they pretty much pure wood. Uh, I haven't seen, you know, I haven't seen any cement takes with wood bottoms. I've seen a couple where like they're like, oh, shit, I have more agave than I thought. And through like the last little bit of like an espadine in there. And then when they distill from that, that's for them. You know, they're like, oh, like this doesn't fit what I want. Know it's not. Yeah, they don't want to sell you that. They don't want that to be put forward, but they know it's going to. That's what we drink when we go out there. Right. They bring it up. They bring it and they put it like they'll distill it. And that's what they use for these these field ensembles, these weird little things. This is where you get their experiment. Like and also we have guys that experiment. Right. Like they do different things like fun. Uh, we, one of our young guys fermented, uh, quiche and he had a little bit of quiche and he had a little bit of tapastate and he just had a little bit left over. And so we put them together to ferment together and then he distilled that fermentation together and then he distilled it. And I don't see that very often. Usually if you make an ensemble, it's distilled separately and then put together. It's not fermented together and then distilled together. I think, uh, Real Minero might had a, a an yeah. ensemble similar to that. Yeah, they did a special version of it, I believe. And but like that's like a, what's a one off, you know. And that, that's the best thing. Like uh, those are those little weird micro distillates are fun. And by having the ensemble, it allows us, and it allows the maestros because they know their money's coming in. They know that they've got their bread and butter. And so if they want to play around, they know they can. Uh, and I just reap the benefits of getting to hang out and drink that. Um, <laughs> yeah, hopefully, we can yeah. figure out a way that. <laughs> more people can do that and see that these guys are creative mad scientists geniuses they're not we're not we don't we over romanticize this like tradition of their like history but 
these guys are modern. They're interesting. They're, they're looking at a science in a very different way than we like to apply names to. But I don't think that makes them any less modern. They may have this amazing historical past, but I think to pigeonhole them into that is to do a disservice to Mezcal because there's so much we can still do with it. Mm -hmm. Like I had a, I had a, they fermented with apples and espadine. It was like a espadine brandy. Hmm. It was amazing. Hmm. Noah brought in the mango uh, distillation. What was that? That was, um, that was a, it was from Vago, I think, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. really good. I know yeah. that one. And yeah. then there's a guy in Amatengo right now, El Distillado, uh, Jose from El Distillado, if you guys drank with him. He's super nice. All the good. Joseph, Jason, awesome guys. Do you think you would ever bring some of that funkier, more experimental stuff to market, even if it's just like bespoke, very, very small batches? Hopefully. Okay. I mean, yeah. if you look at the back of Summer Battles, there are 100, we're buying lots of 200 liters right. of things, and yeah. some of them go down to like 100. This is one right. out of 100 bottles. But. And so I think what's interesting about what Banez is doing right now is like, yeah, you have your ensemble, that's like the standard, but now you've also got these single expressions, and, you know, the price point is very different for those. Yeah. Because of what it takes to make them. I think I'm, I'm very, very happy to be able to have this full conversation with you guys because there was there was a little bit of of nervous thoughts on my part exclusively mm -hmm. personal of seeing a brand that i tasted and it tastes good but i see the price and it makes me think all kinds of stuff and and being able to talk about it and being able to to dissect a little bit of what this actually looks like it makes sense yeah. you know is is volume you're doing a production that is big you have a, a responsibility with your palenqueros year around and and that makes a whole difference. And let's you know, let's talk about the whole the whole system, right? It's CNI, the the importers, correct? Mm -hmm. um, they have a big role to play in in creating a, an environment that is um, safe and sustainable to keep on doing this, right? Like the collective has chosen to work with them, correct? Yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, would they be like? Um, stakeholders in that collective as well or like is the partnership just like an agreement of like hey we'll be able to um, buy this much product Speaking from you oh, and yeah. 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 Okay. yeah I mean granted one of our bosses is also a former lawyer so there is definitely like <laughs> We're binding everywhere. paperwork and things like that like yeah. this is a full like yeah this is a full agreement but uh, part of it is so let, let's, we pay them up front for a series of containers, right? And they fill that and we work with them to hopefully get that up at certain times to continue just like every other liquor brand, right? You, you get your product up to the distributors and things or to, to get it sold. Um, but something that I find really interesting is that they fill those. Um, they can leave. They can say, we don't want to work with you anymore. They're right? not bound. They're not bound yeah. to us by any means. They uh, like, but we work with each other. So if they have problems, they'll come to us uh, and they'll be like, Hey, we know that it's earlier than like when we expected, but the guys have a lot of mezcal already. And we would, we were hoping that you guys could buy the next containers a little early. And the importer can, or CNI who are two brothers, Scott and Kurt Goldman. Uh, they're pretty great. Cool. Uh, and they, uh, and they, and I got to tell you, they can't, they came to the table and they do their best. And there is a lot of back and forth of like, we want this and they want this and my job is where does the middle lie right. what can realistically be done to make sure that these guys get paid fairly equally and on time and we get mezcal fairly equally on time 
the negotiators. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 That's really good. There yeah. is a background of palenque hopping, right? For mm-hmm. brands to find their mezcal. Uh, like sometimes we think about like, how could you, one palenque possibly fill this much? There's a big abuse history of palenques. Exactly. And the more we talk to people and the more we all, because I think it's, it's a collective knowledge now that the more that we research, the more you hear. And there's also a lot of gossip, so mm-hmm. yeah. you have to be very careful of what you're saying, where you're saying it, and how you're being truth to your research and what you really know, and it's not just a gossip. But with the same note, like having this conversation is the best way to clear, to openly discuss and show how a brand that is big, that you see it everywhere, that you see it efficiently in every bar being mixed in cocktails and now being served in single single pours this is a big step like is 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 a difficult it's difficult not to think the worst because we have here horror stories many times but knowing that you guys are doing like the right thing is pretty amazing yeah the sale and production of mezcal has has placed has had its place in mesoamerica for long 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 time we'll put it that way we'll wait for the next podcast um but uh um that's gonna be a discussion panel of experts <laughs> count me out i'll wait i'll wait and listen i have my own opinions but who am i to say stuff but essentially it's been do- it's been done for a very long time but it being in a westernized market is incredibly new incredibly incredibly new like we say yes the do came around 15 years mezcal has been popular and blowing up in the market in the u.s in five yeah. And specifically, I just want to make it clear, when Gabrielle says, we see you everywhere, we see you in New York everywhere. But we, you know, how much, what's your distribution like nationwide? We everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, Yeah. We're still a small company. Yeah. We're not very many people, but our team works really hard. hard. Like we're, Chicago is a huge supporter of Bonhez, like. Mm -hmm. I'm really happy about that. I can go, I can walk into anywhere and um, order a Bonhez. And the nice thing is I'm, I'm not in sales. Ideally I'm in sales. Anytime I'm going there, I'm trying to do what's right for the co-op, but also I can take a night off and go sit in the corner and no one knows I work for a mezcal company and I can order a beer and a Bonhez in almost anywhere else. And it's amazing. I think that that's one the beer keeps you away. Yeah. I am covered in a lot of tat- agave tattoos. <laughs> I don't ask for. I don't ask my tattoo artist. He just tattoos me. So, really? yep, that's how I ended up with a portrait of a hula on my chest. Show us. <laughs> we should have had you take the photograph shirtless. No one wants no. to see that. Just a little bit. Just a yeah. little bit. Um, you're doing a bat project. Yeah. So we are cur- like currently working on bringing the importance of bats to the forefront of knowledge within a hula. So a big, the first step we did was a bat class where we brought in Miguel Briones, a professor from ICER, uh, which is the Polytechnic Institute in Oaxaca. And we had a class with 45 participants from 12 communities within a hula that are part of the co-op. And we talked about the difference in bats, what they do, how many insects they eat. And it was like really interesting watching as they realized, wait, there's more than one bat and it doesn't suck my blood. And we're like, oh. So this was to educate the community on yeah. the importance of the pollination and yep. the different kinds That's of bats. That's really different cool. Kinds of bats. Yeah. And so now we are working with a local studio to produce bat houses. We're going to do series of six. So they're going to spell out Bonhez. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to do three of them, three series of six, one in Amatengo uh, with Polo, one in uh, Agua del Espino, where our, one of our large communities has their agaves, and then one in our like Palenque in San Miguel. 
Uh, and the idea is we'll carry this and continue this every year. And so we'll be able to build these colonies for bats, hopefully build. There's the giant bat houses, which can hold entire counties, uh, colonies. Is the bat endemic to Oaxaca? Mm -hmm. Is the bat a specific? I, I, I read yeah. a little bit, but I, I can't remember perfectly. So agave is from Mexico mm -hmm. and Mercilagos came and evol have evolved together for... Oh, let me finish this, sorry. <laughs> Pause. Have evolved together. Eager pour. <laughs> so the first iteration of the actual bat god that you see throughout Mesoamerica, adopted by the Mayans and the Aztec culture. Um, I'm blanking on the name. Um starts with a C. Oh my gosh, I have it in my pocket. But anyways, uh, the first ever iteration is from a cult of the Zapotec out of Teotitlan. Um, and it's believed it, uh, because, and they were held as, essentially it would be like what we would in, in uh, the classics would be Hades, uh, who is the god of hell, but is not evil. And it's the, and he, and the Zapotecs in Oaxaca are the first to bring out a god that is associated with bats that and it and it accompanies the idea of the underworld. Mm -hmm. the underworld. Yes, it's like the Jaguar God and that was the original Jaguar God in Maya. They live in both worlds and, and and to be for life to exist, death has to exist. And I, I think that's beautiful, you know. I, I think that's really cool, but uh the iteration of that god is from Oaxaca. There's there's this very and and you you see it and you read it often of of that cycle, of like not just life and death but also the transformation of death to the earth and then the regrowth of the minerals and this mm -hmm. whole whole it's idea amazing. of like uh, one of the things that I, I was reading uh, recently was when when you have this harvest uh, agaves and they they take everything away and they they clear the soil like they're just killing it because. You have to let it just when you cut everything, it yeah. just it just has to go back in some way or form to to replenish the mineral the minerals that the plant itself has and all that. Yeah, our uh, our guys out in Agua del Espino and some of the other fields. So after they harvest agave, it's actually a two to three year waiting period where they plant mm -hmm. squad. They do the three sisters things yeah. like that. The, yeah. and, it, and because the soil's so shallow, you can't churn it. And so it's incredibly where we are. It's v like the importance of this agriculture that is agroforestry, including like this kind of holistic view that strives from the agrarian Zapotecs of using everything, everything's intertwined, mm -hmm. uh, is really cool because it's not like we had to be like, oh, you should be thinking about your soil as they're like, this is what we do. Right. I you know we've been doing this for thousands of years. Right. And because it's it's a collective composed of all of these members, their growing cycles are different from each other. It's not like they're on the same cycle. Exactly. Yeah. And especially because they're as a community. So like when the money comes in from that harvest that's ready, it's split among the community. But we yeah. also like pay the community and it's split among them, like those community members that agreed to be part of the co-op and use their land that way. I forgot to ask you this earlier. Um, have from your time being in Oaxaca, um, dealing with the different farmers and mezcaleros, mm -hmm. Have you come across um, issues of disease in plants? And if so, how is that handled? And also, I guess, like, kind of like a sub question would be like with the bats, you know, you hear a lot about like bats, like, you know, um, being great hosts for all kinds of bacterial diseases and stuff. Like, is that an issue? 
not in agaves because the big importance for bats is producing unique genetics. The semillas are cross-pollinated, and that's where you fight disease. Mm-hmm. And actually, Ryan— For the agaves themselves, yeah. absolutely. So there's diversity. Something yeah. that we saw when we were up in one of the fields is that our lines, you can tell that the espinine didn't come from bubitas or these things. It is different sizes and different forms and what, shapes. What you just said, because you said that really quickly, is that your espadines aren't all from bubil, bulbils. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. That's from that's like yeah. the little guys that grow off of the quiote yeah. and, or from iuelos. Uh, like duelos, we don't cut or retransplant. What uh-huh. we do, because cuelos grow in espadines, especially that have been transplanted and agaves that have been transplanted. Quiche, another story. Those right. guys are just weird. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> We don't cut or splice any of that. And if you are to come out to our field in Aguado Espino, when you look at a line, it's not going to be uniform or even, and you'll be able to tell the difference because the espinines, the little greens will be different. How they're growing is different. Yeah. And and that's we'll a big We'll put some thing. pictures up online. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's really fascinating to see. Like you can tell that, yes, they are the same species. They're probably really similar in age, but you can see that they're different genetics because they're developing at different speeds. What you're trying to say, and we, we have talked often about it, they're not clones. They're not clones. No, they're not they're clones. Not, the thing is, it's a very... I thought you were going in a different direction. Yeah, me too. We, you, you want to know? know? We, we allow because they our are, to be because they very are promiscuous. This, Mariah, they really, really, really wanted to do this, so we did it for her. But what me. I was trying to say yeah. is, like, they're not clones. They're they're, they have you have this biarity and and the 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 genetic is being strengthened yeah. it's not just monoculture yeah. we're not yeah. telling them to wait for marriage they can do whatever they want yeah but not all of them right no I no mean, i mean that's a big thing is yeah. like we leave a lot of our quiotes and that is the debate right that is the struggle do i make agave do i make mezcal or do I have potentially? Right. Do I let? Do I maybe get seeds? And I guess it's also a very important point knowing that a, a big majority of the state of Oaxaca is in deep poverty. There's, there's yep. no light. There's nope. no. There's no way to hide it in any way or form. There's no buffer room. And there's no buffer. So if somebody is in in a position of stress where it is either I cut and I I I, I cut this agave early and distill whatever it comes out because I'm going to make some money to survive, they're going to do it. Yeah, and who are we to tell them they're wrong? I would love to not have that happen because I think that the mezcal produced this way is better, but... If you like, how how are you just supposed to tell someone that needs that money for yeah. to survive that, no, that I th- I their think... crop is not right? You can't harvest well, they, it. That way. The thing is, they know that it's not ready. They know, but this and 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 having and and have here you guys talking about a cooperative that pays up front, mm-hmm. that gives these certain securities that will, in some way or form, help not to stress this situation where in other, in other places where they're single producers that they have one client and they have to work this way and they have to meet the criteria of whatever the brand tells them instead of working in a collaborative way will be kind of interesting right and also back to what i was asking too like if there's a disease that you know permeates a field of agave it's gonna hit the first one or two you can see it actually in our fields yeah uh every once in a while you'll come and agave will be dead and it might be from the worm the boar the beetle it also could be from a disease it tends to be bugs because we're kind of isolated up where we are there's not as many monocultures around us that can invite these pests Mm -hmm. um and i mean we have but we have to be so careful because this isn't a year crop right Mm -hmm. if that 
blight comes in, you're screwed for the next seven to eight. To well, that's what I, was, I mean. Years. You know, if that happens, is it the collective that takes responsibility to sort of help that field out, the person that owns it? Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, like because you know we're they're they're getting paid this 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 living wage for the maintenance and caretaking of their land. That does not include buying the agave itself. Mm-hmm. And so if this, in another situation, let's say that they were they were depending on that espadine harvest from that field, they've been like penny counting, pension, like penny pinching for the past seven years because they know that this is how they do it. The second that hits, like they're screwed. They're screwed. Yeah. yeah. And so if we can offer some sort of this and then let's say it all dies, we also have nurseries within our co-op so we can provide them the meals and they can be like, listen, like we don't have the money from the sale. Like what can we do? Can we, if you give us these, can we take the cost of these out of the price at the end? And we can right. be like, yeah, because yeah. we know we have other stuff. So, so there's can, room for negotiation yeah, there. There's yeah. buffer room. And it, like, like I said, it's has a, that happened since you've been down there? Not since I've been down there. Okay. Uh, we haven't had anything like that. We just had a batch of quiche, for example, that uh, somehow it's like 18 cases, right? It's not, it's not that many. It's mm-hmm. 180 bottles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one lot from one producer and it's being held up by, for some reason, it's not like the certification isn't going through, even though the oh, rest of them did. okay. It's like and so, the bureaucracy. Yeah. We <laughs> can't bottle that, but, and like, let's say that happened to us and we only had one quiche producer that we would be screwed until uh-huh. it goes through. But because we have another one, we can go to this other lot, get that certified and do that and wait for this certification. So it'll eventually go to market. I see. I yeah. see. Very interesting. Well, just to wrap it up, I do ask people this um, with regularity. What is a misconception that you guys see out there in in the field of um, what people might think um, about mezcal or agave distillates? What'd you say? And you try to fix it. Yeah, you try to maybe correct the misconception. I think that it has to be high percentage, and that it it like I think the biggest misconception for me is putting end caps on mezcal. It is such a huge spectrum. We think about sexuality and we think about particle physics and these new concepts come in every day and we're still learning. So to put end caps on things like this really narrows our mindset. And I think the same thing can be said for Mezcal, right? We're still learning. We're in the first early years, people are of understanding it better. And so in order to do that, I think drink mezcal with an open mind. Don't be the guy that goes, this is for, this is below 45%. Right. This is below 50%. It's not real mezcal. Absolutely. Who are you to say what's real and what's not? Drink Absolutely. it if you like it and they call it mezcal. Be happy. Be happy that that <laughs> made it thousands of miles to your hand in a glass. We've got friends that have been in the industry for 20 plus years, like, you know, and they're still like, I'm learning so much every day. And, and, and to me, I mean, that's, that's kind of a mantra for living you know yeah. like i think that you just need to keep an open mind like take all that information that you have and use it to your benefit but don't let it limit you yeah, yeah. i would i would add on that as well i think that um when it comes to mezcal especially but spirits in general um that as a consumer and people that maybe have a little bit less uh, knowledge about the category and about the different varietals I think it's sort of similar to wine where people feel sort of intimidated to sort of partake in the discussion because they don't know the different types of grapes or regions or things like that. I think it's really being uh, courageous and sort of, you know, stepping up and and being able to taste things with people that maybe know a little bit more about you and really like listening and talking about that and not being too intimidated about the whole process. 
Absolutely. And something that I find that's really helpful is when I'm with a group of people that know a lot more than I do, um, you know, I'm, I get a little nervous and it's not like I want to tell them like what my opinion is. I'll just ask some questions, right? you know, and yeah. that way you can just redirect the conversation and then you can add in what you know or where you've been or what you've seen. And it's, it's just all good. Right. What, the the, what's the saying where it's like, if you're the person in the room who knows the most, you're in the wrong room. Something like that, <laughs> Oh yeah. I, that's a good one. Yeah. That's, that's good news yeah. for me. That's awesome. I'm never the person in the room that knows the most. <laughs> Well, you guys, I want to thank you so much for being here today. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, thank you for having thank us. You. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, Hey, Broadway is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabrielle Velasquez-Zazueta and me, Sabrina Lassard. Our music is by Milagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at Milagro underscore Verde BK. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Salut, Sita.